0: welcome to Women in Confidence with me, Vanessa Murphy, HR expert, confidence coach, and now podcaster. This podcast discusses all things to do with confidence in life and in work. And this is a podcast for women who want to learn what confidence is, how to obtain it, and how to maintain it, and learn how confidence can help you grow and flourish. Every week, I introduce you to amazing women who have interesting stories to tell about confidence. Through their stories, insights, hints and tips, you realise that a lack of self-belief or low self-esteem is common, and also very human. But by listening to them, you'll take away what they have done to show up confidently on the inside, as well as on the outside. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Women in Confidence. If you haven't already noticed, I love this podcast because I get to speak to and introduce you to incredible women. And this week's guest is no exception. So I'm pleased to introduce you to Dr. Haley Lewis, who is an award-winning psychologist with more than 20 years experience in the field of organizational and business psychology. Haley's experience has seen her leading various local government services, such as organizational development, ICT strategy, customer services, communication, and digital transformation. And that is quite an impressive list. Before this, Haley spent eight years at the BBC, where she was an organisational psychologist supporting leadership development and executive assessment activity. Haley also teaches on master's programmes in organisational and business psychology programmes at several UK universities. Her specialist topics are organisational culture, leadership behaviour and development, female entrepreneurship and building high performance teams. In 2021, Haley was identified as one of the most influential thinkers in HR by HR magazine. And I connected with Haley on LinkedIn, where I saw that she had just celebrated achieving her PhD. Hayley, hello and welcome to Women in Confidence, and thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. No worries. How are you? I'm good,
1: thank you. I'm good. I've had my coffee. Okay. So I've had my first coffee, I should say,
0: so I'm raring to go. We should point out where you are um, and why it's the first coffee of the day. So where <laughs> are you at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen, listeners
1: in Australasia, so in Australia, New Zealand and, and far-fung places will be thinking coffee in the evening. Yeah. No, it's it's, um, it's eight o'clock, just on eight o'clock in the morning here in
0: a not so sunny UK. Mm, well we are now i think just on seven o'clock at night here and on a very sunny day in australia i'm sorry to rub that one in right. the <laughs> so thank you for joining and as i said before we just i just press the button you're the expert in confidence and so i'm going to hand over to you largely and i'll occasionally ask you a question but you are um an expert in all things to do with confidence and self-belief and i'm going to let you sort of answer these but let's start off with the question I ask all my guests what does having confidence mean to you I think for me personally
1: when I feel my most confident i I feel good about myself those pesky that pesky inner voice who tells me I can't do stuff that I'm worthless disappears so my kind of my inner thoughts turn from a constant diatribe of negativity into almost like my own inner cheerleading squad. And so, so yeah, I feel like I can, I've got what it takes to do what I need to do. And, and there's an overlap between kind of confidence and self-belief. They're they're like two halves of the same coin, if you like. So yeah, so when I'm feeling my most confident, I feel like I can do pretty much anything that I put my mind to. And it's all about for me the inner dialogue.
0: Yeah, and that inner dialogue and that inner voice, inner critic. I mean, I've heard it called all sorts of things. Mine's just called Vanessa Mark too And mine's called Brenda. <laughs> Brenda. That was our sat nav. We used to call our satna Brenda. So I don't know why. But anyway, there we go, little fact. But your inner thoughts and your inner critic, has that always been there, or is that just something you're more aware of?
1: I think it's I think it's oh it's definitely always been there. And for many, well, for, for many of us. Those inner thoughts are, to some degree, fed by our life experiences, our upbringing, our cultural heritage, all sorts of things. And so, yeah, to to some extent, they're always there and they're constantly being fed in some shape or, or form. I think I think the negative inner voice really started to come into its own when I entered the world of work properly. So I'm not talking about Saturday jobs or stuff like that. But when, yeah, when I when I kind of went into the proper workplace after undergrad, I think we then I think that tendency, particularly for women, to compare ourselves to others, almost like ramped up a whole degree, well, ten degrees, and so so yeah, so certainly twenties and thirties for me personally the inner dialogue was was negative for the most part yeah definitely quite self-destructive at times
0: in terms of your work let's talk about that because this is one of the reasons why i've got you on because of your line of work and what it um what it can do around confidence and the exposure you're getting to women so just help um the listeners understand what it is that you do yeah so my uh, my day-to-day work so
1: i'm a qualified psychologist And I specialise in leadership and management behaviour and in particular how this can affect organisational culture, team performance. So that's kind of what I do broadly, broad strokes on a day-to-day basis. Most of my work, particularly my coaching work, my one-to-one coaching work is more often than not, and it's not not always been a deliberate thing, is with women. Um, So female Managers and all the way up to kind of board level um, leaders wanting to do some one-on-one work, and they'll show up and want to. They present an issue that they want to work on. But as as many of you will know, listening to this, particularly if you if you work in the coaching space, when you kind of dig away and dig away, you know, after a few sessions, you get to the heart of what's really going on. And for many of my female coaching clients. More often than not, what comes out once I've kind of dug away and we've kind of gone deep on the conversation are issues of imposter feelings, lack of confidence, lack of kind of feeling less than. And that was happening so often that it kind of started to make me curious, particularly for many women who were thinking about perhaps setting up their own business, but who were fearful that they would never be able to do that, probably because of things that had happened to them in their organizational life which is then what led me to do do my doctoral research and so that's led me down to a second arm of work which is working with women who want to leave corporate life to set up their own business and want to give themselves as good a shot as possible in a what can be a very competitive space particularly if you're thinking of setting up a a kind of a, a coaching or training business. And so, so, yeah, so hopefully that's like a broad brush
0: yeah and we're going to dive into some of those and I'm not really mm-hmm. sure where to start because there's so much <laughs> that you do but I'm just going to go back to you were talking about women who want to leave corporate life and start their own business mm-hmm. so they've got an idea and they know they want to do it then why do they need coaching so what was really interesting to me
1: is I noticed this more and more so so my business is it's coming up for its sixth birthday this year and over those years I noticed more and more women in varying senior positions who would almost kind of whisper like it's a dirty secret like I actually don't think I want to become chief executive or I don't want to move up into the next role. I've always wanted to set up my own florist business. So I've always wanted to become a coach myself, but I don't think I can do it. And that was happening so often. that it just made me curious about what is it about these amazing women? They've worked their way up into incredible positions. And for many of them, they're also juggling other commitments, whether it's kind of caring for family members or other stuff. So what is why are they telling themselves they can't do this? And then I thought about my own experiences as, as a female business owner and I think part of it is the messaging the narrative that we are often bombarded with around what a successful business owner looks like about what it takes to be a successful business owner you know earn six, uh, it's not six figures anymore it's earn seven figures <laughs> crush the day get up at four and do all the things and, and kind of work. you know, there's no time off as an entrepreneur and just this really kind of what I find toxic and insidious messaging. And so that was like a second thing that made me curious, which is why I thought I want to kind of unpick if there's a bit of a roadmap for women who've made that step successfully and navigated those early years. So we know a lot of businesses can kind of shut up shop, if you like, within the first three years, particularly, you know, in the in a UK context. For example, the average is around 60% of, of businesses close within the first three years. And so I wanted to turn that on its head and explore what does it take to keep a business going? And so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of all those things brought together led me to doing the research that I did.
0: And let's talk about that now, then, and this is for your PhD. So I should have introduced you as Dr. (laughs) Hayley. Which is
1: still very strange.
0: (laughs) Which is quite new. And that is one of the reasons why we are talking, because you were celebrating it on LinkedIn and I was like right I want to talk to this lady she sounds amazing <laughs> so your dissertation was how do women business owners define success and what are the psychological factors that enable them to succeed have I got that right you have yeah ah. so first of all you've explained why but mm. what did you uncover yeah so I
1: I did um two big studies so um and so if we bring those studies together so the first was a systematic review of of kind of the literature over the last 20 years I wasn't interested in any research kind of pre-2000 I think there's been a real shift around small business ownership micro business ownership entrepreneurship in the 21st century so I kind of wasn't interested in anything before that um so that was kind of the first study, which then led me to my second study of interviewing a group of women business owners in the UK. So bringing those two things together, there were some really interesting things that came out. So one of the main issues I have is how success as business owners is defined. As I said earlier, you know, a lot of it is is about money. And, and I think that can be really off-putting. To people it's not that money's not important you know i'm not naive we live in a capitalist world um most of us but it can't be the be all and end all and interestingly kind of all the studies that i looked at they didn't none of them defined success but they all measured success in financial terms so when they were researching business owners women and men they were using things like size of profit growth so number of employees sales all that stuff when I spoke, when I spoke to the women in my second study, um, I wasn't interested in measures. I was interested in definitions. Now, one of the there were there were five that came out and really clear, crystal clear things. Um, one of them was about money. You, you got you got your money to live right, and and what was interesting is many of the women that I spoke to were the main wage earners in their families. You know, I am, and so there was this thing around earning enough earning enough money for a comfortable life. So being able to pay a mortgage, being able to go on holiday if you wanted, having savings for a rainy day. But there certainly wasn't anything about this grandiose, you know, I want a six or seven million, six or seven million, six or seven yeah. figure turnover. Seven million would be nice. Six <laughs> or seven figure turnover or I want 100 employees. There was none of that. It was about earning enough to live a good life and then the four other kind of definitions were much more about how the how the woman felt about herself amongst other things so for many of the women they talked about wanting a great reputation that was a that was a definition of success for, for most of them actually around how other people spoke about them and their business word of mouth Um, having repeat business because they've done such great work which then led to the second thing which is having a tangible impact so actually having hard data hard evidence that you have made a a significant difference to to the individuals or businesses that you're working with and then two really really I mean it's all interesting to me I'm a bit of a geek but there were two really really interesting things so the, the the fourth was and it probably isn't a surprise to some of your listeners, was this thing around freedom and autonomy. That was a mark of success. Being able to go, do you know what? I don't feel like working today. I'm going to go out for a bike ride or I'm, you know, I've got this thing I need to, I've got to look after a family member and I can do that without worrying that I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to have to eat into my holiday leave or, you know, and and that freedom and autonomy, really important. It was one of the drivers, actually, for many of the women. And then the fifth one is one of the unique contributions that my study makes is this idea of thriving. So there's a theory called the theory of thriving at work. It's from 2005. It's not that well known a study. It's one of my favourites. If you can have a favourite study, that's one of my favourites. <laughs> I need to get out more. But it hadn't really been applied in, a, in an entrepreneurial context. And what came out loud and clear in conversations with the women is through the language they used, through the stories they shared, is they were all thriving, not just surviving. And when we thrive in a work context, we're learning all the time and we get energy and vitality from our work. And there was one of the the women I spoke to, she said, I am in love with my business. She she used the the kind of the the phraseology, the metaphor of love. She was absolutely in love, almost giddy with with that kind of first flush of love (laughs) with her business. And that to me was such a powerful example of somebody who's thriving as a result of setting up their own business. So that's just the kind of definitions of success, really different from what, most studies have well none of the studies have told us how to define it they've told us how to measure it Um, and I just think that's really interesting and it means that we can start to tell a different story to women and potentially men who want to make that step money's important but here are all the other things that could make a difference for you.
0: And so the the females that you interviewed came out with these things that they defined as success did they share mm. with you how they've gone about it so how have yeah. they got their freedom how are they made an impact etc yeah. um so, so that's you, the kind yeah. of the second bit
1: of the, the the conversation really so I was I was interested in the, the psychology of women business owners and I looked at what we call the holy trinity as psychologists so I was looking at Competencies, personality and values. And my study is the first known study to specifically and explicitly look at values in relation to business ownership. So in terms of kind of those kind of core competencies, it is really interesting because, again, much of the the literature has told us women are women business owners tend to be really strong at the, the the soft stuff and not so much at the hard Competencies like planning. My study, particularly the second one, turned that on its head. So there were two soft competencies, let's call them, that absolutely came out loud and clear. So every single woman talked about the importance of her of relationships and that ability to build and nurture and maintain relationships. Many of them talked about their network, the professional network, their personal network. And Many of them talked about actually having built and nurtured those networks before they even set foot outside their corporate life. And the second soft one was around self, what I call self-directed learning, which kind of links back to how we thrive. So being proactive about how you're learning as a business owner getting yourself a mentor, getting yourself a coach. So many of the women had invested in that, reading books, just learning stuff in different ways every day. In terms of the kind of the hard technical competencies, there were three. So actually there were more that came out. Every single woman talked about (coughs) the importance of business planning. So that's everything from your business plan, but also how you plan and organise your day. So, and lots of them talked about the importance of that, which I'll come to in a minute when we talk about personality. This idea that you don't just walk into your business and hope for the best, which actually so many of us do. I'm going to hold my hands up. I didn't do a business plan when I left a very highly paid corporate role and set up my business. I fell into that trap of focusing on my colours and my brand logo um, and then wondered why I didn't have a lot of work in the first couple of months. So the, the women I spoke to didn't do that. They, they absolutely did planning. And then the second was around deep understanding and paying attention to the market. So what I call market sector awareness, kind of what are your competitors doing? How are you benchmarking against them? Um, if you're working or supporting individuals or companies in certain sectors, are you paying attention to trends and law or policy change, all that stuff. Um, And then many of the women talked about that in depth. And then the third was commercial thinking. So having a a crystal clear pricing strategy um, and having kind of researched that, which links to the previous competency, being prepared and being really savvy about how you negotiate with clients on, on costs. So having some real strategy, almost like a game of chess around that. So maybe taking a financial hit for a first piece of work because you know you're going to be working with them in the longer term and actually it's going to be a long burn and you could potentially earn more money um, just by getting your foot in the door. So, yeah, lots of kind of anecdotes around that. So those were the kind of the main competencies. I mean, in terms of personality, um, I won't go through all of them, but two of the main ones that came up. So I used what's called the Big Five personality Factors, it's the most commonly and most trusted personality framework used by psychologists. One of the ones that came out loud and clear from that was conscientiousness. And so conscientiousness is about doing what you need to do, having routines to get you to do that. And just that kind of reliability, if you like. And so many of the women talked about the importance of routine and how they'd put in place routines. So it was very easy for them to fall into the trap of, <laughs> I can get up whenever I want, which can be which, which is what can happen to many of us. And so having a routine, getting up at a regular time, even if you didn't have work booked in, and just having kind of set things that you did um, was was fundamental. Many of the women felt it was fundamental to their success, particularly in terms of navigating what can be a really tough first few years when you're trying to kind of build your business and interestingly a couple of my participants were late diagnosis ADHD because I can imagine some listeners who who might be diagnosed with ADHD go well that's all very well Hayley but you know I struggle with that and so the two women who told me they were diagnosed with ADHD they said it was even more important they put in place routines as a business owner so that conscientious they had to work harder at it but it didn't mean they couldn't Mm. do that stuff and then the second aspect of personality was self-efficacy which you and I talked about Mm. when we met originally Vanessa so this is about your self-belief believing that you've got what it takes you've got the skills the knowledge the experience to do what you set out to do and do that successfully that was just every single conversation I had with every woman that came through loud and clear Mm. And so talking about role models, they were comparing themselves. So role models can be really helpful for us with our self-belief. Remembering tough times that you'd had where you'd got through, you'd learned something new, you'd done it successfully. So drawing on kind of past and visualising. So a lot of the women talked about visualising where they wanted their business to go and that helped them kind of map out how they were going to get there. So that's just a couple of um, personality aspects.
0: So, well, my first question is... When you were interviewing all these women who, you know, sound really impressive and absolutely on the ball, did you ever think I might need to do a bit of work on myself here? And I don't mean that in a critical way, but I think sometimes Hell people yeah, have women and high that. achievers, you're like, oh, what am I doing here?
1: Hell yeah. Right. I I I I thought, oh, so I need to I need to get better at the business planning, clearly. I mean, my business is successful. Um, but it could potentially be even more successful if I, if I wanted it to be. So, yeah, there were, there were it wasn't so much about that in myself, but it just, I think more than anything, Vanessa, it helped me make sense of my own journey over the last kind of six years. Um, and I'll tell you what resonated more. So whilst I didn't explicitly or specifically ask about it, what came out to potential hurdles, so the things that the women found difficult, so the first, And I, so I included those in my thesis. So the first of these was confidence around finance. But again, all of the women have put in place strategies to help them with that, whether that was getting an accountant, bookkeeper, whether that was dedicating time once a month to make sure you're going through your, um, any spreadsheets, doing a, doing a, in the UK, doing an HMRC, it's a revenue and customs course. So you can do all sorts of online courses. So there were kind of strategies. So the women knew this was something that none of them liked. None of them felt hugely confident about, but they, they'd put in place strategies. So I really identified with that. My accountant's great by the way. And the second was a discomfort with the hard sell. So, you know what I'm talking about. Those people who slide into your dms you know you've just connected with them and in a nanosecond they're like would you like to buy no i wouldn't um but it seems that that is what is being perpetuated and told we're told is how you get business is doing that and actually what my study and what my instinct already told me is that's a nonsense that's that's No, that isn't how you go about doing that. And whilst there was a discomfort with the hard sell and all of the women talked about that, actually, it's not a massive hurdle because of their focus on building quality Mm -hmm. relationships, building reputation. Very few, if any of them, have to do the hard sell. People either come to them or, or reach out to them on the back of maybe content they've, they've put out. And that again, that resonated with me because I have never and never intend to do the hard sell. I don't have to because my focus is on putting helpful, quality information out there, which piques people's interest Meaning they come to me. Um, so that's what resonated more than anything. Is it, I think it helped make sense
0: of my own journey. And then relationships and networking, and I'm certainly not going to argue with a doctor in, in this subject, but I think many women find the term networking and sometimes the reality of networking mm. terrifying. Yeah. You know, they're going into a room with a business card and you have to spout shit for you know five minutes or whatever to yeah. try and I don't know, bring in some business. Is what was coming up for the people you interviewed? And because yeah. networking that you described was very different.
1: Yeah. So yeah, it's not that icky networking, you know. Press the not that we press the flesh anymore. Uh, it's like stay away from me, unless you're in a hazmat suit. But but yeah, that kind of icky, very fake feeling. This is about deep relationships. This is about community, which also came up as a value. So there were three really crystal clear values that came out from the women's stories. The things that they're kind of the things that were core to them and one of them was being community-oriented. So there's an overlap, there's a relationship, I think, between having this value about being community-oriented and this overlap with building and nurturing relationships. One of the women I spoke to, she had been a highly successful award-winning HR director and stepping into, and she was a fairly new business owner, she was in first year out of the three years, And she said it was an incredibly humbling experience about the community that wrapped itself around her. So the many women who either she reached out to to ask for advice, who readily gave her advice and help, or who proactively reached out to her when they saw that she'd left and gone independent. And she said it was one of the most humbling experiences of her life. Women who readily and just so generously gave their time, their contacts they introduced her to their clients and so she talked about community in fact a lot of the women talked about community but she said that's spurred her on to reach out to to women setting up their own businesses behind her she said I want to give back I now always want to give back I didn't so much in my kind of corporate role but now as a business owner and I heard lots of stories like that but that's the one that really kind of resonated and so yeah so how values can when we're living to our values, the difference it can make for us, for our loved ones, for our businesses is is monumental. And so, the second value was around authenticity. Every single woman said, "I can finally be who I am. I've been pretending to be someone else, or I've kind of conformed to fit what was expected of me in corporate life. And now I can be who I am. I can live life on my own terms. My business can reflect me." and my personality. And, and I love that. So, yeah, so those were kind of two of the main values that kind of, mm. yeah, this sense of community, which I think offsets the the icky feel we can get around networking.
0: And what you were talking about the community and networking women giving so generously, I can, I can totally say I felt the benefits of that mm. because of this podcast. You know, I reached mm. out to a few people and you, you know, we didn't know each other and I reached out to you on LinkedIn and, we're now here talking, and you've even referred me to, is it Dr. Anna Kane? You know, so, yeah. and many of the people who now come on this podcast are people that have been referred to me or recommended to me. So, you know just this podcast alone i'm feeling the power of that community and that network and you're so right women give so generously yeah. expect nothing in return at all so you know thank you for for sort of bringing that point up but the other one other thing i want to talk about is because you said about authenticity people have been pretending to be mm. someone else at work i mean i can relate to that i'm absolutely you know mm. sort of nodding when you were talking <laughs> why do we do that to ourselves
1: I think because for many of us, and you know, I make no assumptions about where, what countries and, and cultural backgrounds your, your listeners have. But if I take our context, you know, you're from the UK originally, Vanessa, and you know, for me personally, being a child of the 70s and 80s, we were brought up in a certain way. You know, you go to school, you get good grades, you go to university. Well, certainly that was. I'm a first gen going to university and so I never even questioned it you know mum and dad working class mum had been forced to leave school at 15 she'd got a scholarship but my granddad thought girls didn't need an education and so mum put all that frustration and dad put all that frustration into me and so you know education matters I didn't question going to university I didn't question this idea of and then you get a good job maybe in the civil service or something like that, and then you work your way up. And how many of us, particularly Generation X, you know, which I am, have ended up in roles that maybe aren't for us because we were just on this almost fast track, tenure track, whatever, get your education, get a good job, work your way up, maybe have a family if if that's what you want. I I don't have children, but yeah, and I think that's why... So many of us end up in positions. And then on top of that, you know, organisations restructure. So I think I said to you when we had our initial meeting, um, my last role, so I, I worked in the public sector and I ended up, my last role before I set up Halo Psychology, I was head of communications and engagement. So I was responsible for communications, PR, digital transformation, media relations, all sort of massive stuff. It was a really high profile role. I ended up in that role because of a series of restructures. And that that role felt really uncomfortable at the beginning. I felt like I was wearing a pair of shoes that were three sizes too small. Um, I just, it didn't fit at first. And I don't think it ever truly fit. I, I kind of made it work for me. But certainly in the early stages of that role, in my first year in that role, I burnt out. I became very physically and mentally ill because I was trying to do all the things, trying to be someone I absolutely wasn't. And I think your body and mind find a way of pushing back at that so but then I made it work and that ironically that was the role I had longest in that organisation but yeah I I think there are a number of reasons why so many of us end up in roles that we never you know I certainly as a four-year-old never dreamt well, one day I want to be head of communications for a large public sector organisation. I want to be a ballerina slash police officer. Um, <laughs> still time. There is still time. Uh, not with the way my joints are at the moment. I, I think there is a whole variety of reasons, but those are probably the core ones that stand out for me.
0: But I think those that the way that we were raised, because we we're roughly about the same age and certainly the mm-hmm. same generation, I'm not sure... The generation coming through, My, I've got a 12-year-old daughter, I'm not sure they're taught anything massively different at school. There's still Mm. an expectation that they'll get good grades and they'll work hard and they'll go to university and they'll get a job and make us all proud. And I think, Mm. I just wonder when it's all going to end. And I'm not going to ask that massive question to you, but it's, you know, that's another hour. thesis for someone to do. (laughs) Yeah, anyone out there listening? Yeah. But I just... I just get frustrated that I'm not sure the cycle has really changed that much mm-hmm. in terms of the I narrative. Agree.
1: I agree. And it's really easy. I fall into this trap. Social media, for example, see Instagram and TikTok, all that stuff. I think it's a bit of an echo chamber. I don't think it's always, I think we sometimes tell ourselves it's representative of the world and representative of different generations. I'm not sure so sure it is. I think it's A bit of an echo chamber, and so it's really interesting what you're saying, Vanessa. You know, drawing on your experience with your 12-year-old daughter, that actually education systems haven't fundamentally changed. Even societally, we haven't changed. Again, you know, I can't talk about other countries, but if I think about the UK, the more things change, the more things stay the same. In fact, I feel like we're going. backwards sometimes with women's empowerment yeah i feel as frustrated as you and and i think again it was one of the it was one of the conversations i had with my examiners when i was um defending my thesis if i can make even just a tiny tiny little dent in the lives of a few women and give them the the belief that they they can step out and and be who they are and do what they always wanted to do then i feel that's a life worth living um, for me personally. Um, even even if I kind of help a few women, that's a few women potentially who wouldn't have made that move otherwise. And I'd like to see more of us, because because if there are more of us doing that, then maybe we create a groundswell to shift societies and education. And, you know, two of my closest friends in the world are educators, they're teachers, one in secondary, one is primary, and they are making changes in their own little part of the sector and in their own little parts of the world. And, and if there were more of us women doing that, I think the world would be a better place.
0: I genuinely think there are women. And because I've met mm. so many of them mm. now through this podcast, I genuinely think there are women yeah. who are changing the world in their little way. And progress may be glacial, but I think there's enough out enough of others out there doing our little piece in the world and maybe this was my little contribution is this podcast but I I, I'm certainly an optimist I just think the pace is is just too slow for my liking
1: I love that I love that response Vanessa I think you're absolutely spot on and what I always say to some of my clients is a step forward is a step forward it doesn't matter if it's like a tiny little pigeon step it's a step in the right direction and that's all we can hope for and we you know when I do culture change work, which is the work I do with Halo, when I'm doing culture change, you know, I say to, I sit in front of a chief exec and then like, I, I want to change the culture by next week, and I have to kind of say, him, we're talking a few years, particularly for large organisations. Well, if you translate that to to kind of societies and global economies, then it is going to feel glacial. But as I say, a step forward is a step forward. That's, okay. that's the thing that matters. We're I definitely us to go this deep. I know We're sorting out world issues now.
0: <laughs> well, there's some bigger world issues you probably that do need sorting out, and maybe a few more mm. women would probably do a better job. But again, for another podcast, not for about women in confidence. So how can people find you? What what's the source of Hailey Lewis? Where can they find you? <laughs> it's the source of my power. Yeah. Uh, you know, the main
1: place that most women, most women and men find me is on LinkedIn. So that's where I'm most active because I put content out every day. I have a website, so I think that'll be in your, your show details. But yeah, LinkedIn is where I'm most active, where I tend to chat to people, where I'm sharing hopefully helpful stuff um, for folk. Um, so yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, but LinkedIn's the go-to. Mm. And I've got a website, but as I say, the link to
0: that will be in the show notes. And your website, you talked about content. Your website is just rich with content. It's so. I, we've talked about this before, but like you are so generous with your content. I mean, to the oh, point. And that that's, are... that's
1: fundamental to to me. I so with Halo Psychology, my my core audience are middle managers, not the sexiest role in the world. But in terms of the work I do, the teaching I do at university, we know middle managers can make or break an, an organisation. They can make life brilliant or uh, an absolute misery. And I speak from my own experience, having worked for some awful middle managers um during my career and it's really interesting because I, I i often get unsolicited when i'm feeling generous i think it's well-meaning i don't always think it's well-meaning but for the most part I think it's well-meaning advice into my linkedin dms of you should sell your ebooks you should monetize and i give those people short shrift because it's a very deliberate strategy on my part First and foremost, it taps into my values. For as many middle managers that can afford to work with someone like me, there are hundreds who will never, ever be able to work with me because of the role they're in, the type of sector or organisation they're in. But I want to help them because I'm passionate about getting to that group. So that's why I share eBooks and downloads and all sorts of stuff so freely. And the second is, from a marketing perspective... This is, the, this is the business, Hayley. That free content, nine times out of 10, I will get someone come through going, I saw this that you shared on LinkedIn, or I downloaded this thing, or I read this blog post. Can I have a chat with you? Because we've got this issue going on and I'd like you to do some work with us. So there's, there's two very clearly thought through reasons why I give so freely, to use your phrase.
0: And one of the things you... Um, Have on your website Is your sketch notes And we have to talk about them Because they've sort of Made (laughs) you semi-famous Haven't they? Yeah Yeah It it feels a bit weird still I've been doing them For five
1: years And I I tell you what I've done a lot of podcasts Over the years And Covering all sorts of So people with Slightly different takes On on working life Every single podcast interviewer At some point Will ask me about Sketch notes I'm sorry Um, to conform No don't Please don't I can talk about them I can talk about them Because I I sometimes Still don't get it I'm like They're literally Stick figures With a bit of bubble writing Surely anyone Can do that So sometimes I find it a bit strange But yeah I When I was in Leadership roles And I used to do the the good old 360 degree feedback. One of the strengths that would consistently come through every time I did that was my ability to simplify complicated, sometimes unnecessarily complex stuff and make it easy for people to understand. So that's always been kind of core to who I am. And when I started my, when I started Taylor Psychology, and I think I mentioned I didn't have any work the first few months and seeing our savings go down was terrifying. I thought I need to do something different. I'm not marketing enough. I'm putting the odd blog post out and then wondering why no one's interested. How dare they? And one day I happened to be on Twitter and I came across this one page drawing and it was like drawings and words, some, talking about some aspects of leadership by a guy called Tanmay Vora. If you don't follow Tan May, you should. He's on Twitter and LinkedIn and his sketches are sublime. He uses an iPad Pro and he's just so clever. And it really spoke to me. And I thought, oh, I like that. It just really, it was like that scene in Wayne's World. It's like, oh, like, a, like an angelic choir. So I thought, I'll give it a go. So I did some kind of free email course. Um, and then really, I just taught myself. I looked on Google and YouTube. My first one. Shall never see the light of day. It's like locked in a vault somewhere. And then yeah, and so I found I, I found it really relaxing. I found it really it almost like soothing because you you're so immersed. Because I do all mine by pencil and then pen. And so you're there's a real, you're so immersed. It's almost like a form of meditation for me, though. And who doesn't like a bit of colouring in, right? It taps into our inner child. And so, but, but more fundamentally, it helps anchor my understanding of research and concepts. So yes, I started putting them out there and I got a little bit of interest. And then there was one I shared in 2017 about leadership and I couldn't keep up. It literally, it was like my own little version of going viral. And I had to come offline for like a couple of days because <laughs> I felt so overwhelmed. And then, yeah, it kind of really took off from there. So I have sketchnote Monday. So anyone who follows me on LinkedIn or Twitter, there's Sketchnote Monday. So every Monday I, I share a brand new sketchnote and the ideas behind it. And I cover all sorts of things like leadership, culture, teams, confidence, all sorts of things from a research base. And yeah, so so quite a few of them go viral now. And I was really honoured to be asked by Adam Grant to, to share a sketchnote in his latest book, which came out last year, Think Again which blew my mind, I actually nearly lost that opportunity because I thought it was a spam. <laughs> I thought it was a fake email and nearly lost out on one of the biggest opportunities
0: of my life. Well, thank the Lord. So I you. actually
1: ignored the email from the editor three, three times um, and it was only on the, the kind of the tenacity of the, the editor, the editing team at Penguin Random House in Viking. that <laughs> I went, oh, maybe it is real. So yeah, the people love the sketch notes, and and so
0: you know I've got to keep feeding the beast now. Absolutely, you've started something now. Uh-huh. So, so just to wrap this up, you know your your background, your PhD, the work you do, you know, and I, I'm not going to joke. You're an expert in. The words or well, the word confidence and everything that means around it. And we've talked a lot about some of the, the words that go around it. So, what's your one piece of advice that you'd say to somebody who's listening to go and how they're going to go and get some confidence or how they're going to maintain their confidence?
1: Yeah, my one piece of advice is get out of your head. And whether that's talking it through with a friend about your idea and, or how you're feeling about something or working with a professional, whether it's a coach finding a mentor or whatever there's something about getting out of your own head because I think as I said right at the start of this conversation so it's it's a nice bookend it can be it become it can become intoxicating and then a self-fulfilling prophecy to engage in that negative talk it can become it can very quickly become a spiral and impact your confidence And so as soon as you notice that happening, think about how you can get out of your head and and kind of head that stuff off at the past. And as I say, more often than not, it's about
0: talking it through with someone who that person is, you have to trust them. But yeah, get out of your head, um, that's good advice and all the details um, a contact is for Hayley I will absolutely put in the show notes and so if there's something that's grabbed your attention then absolutely head over to her website and her Twitter and her LinkedIn profile so Hayley thank you so much for being on and for sharing all your thoughts and all your research around uh, self-efficacy and confidence and success for women business owners so thank you for being on the show you're welcome thank you for having me Thank you so much for listening to Women in Confidence and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then please like it, share it, comment on it and if you want to, sponsor it. If you'd like to take part in my podcast or know somebody who would make a perfect guest, then please email me on contact at vanessa-murphy.com. That's contact at vanessa-murphy.com. Until next time you uh.